This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, Elle and I are talking about the cultural context of Jesus being confronted in the courts with the woman accused of adultery in John 8. I'm excited. This is a wild story. It is for um, quite a few reasons. Um, yeah. But maybe before we get into it, we have so many people who have asked about Hebrew classes with you. And uh, I think we should mention that you have a class starting April 19th for people who want to jump into that. I sure do. I'm starting another round of beginning, intermediate, and advanced lessons along with I'm still taking private students at this particular time. So uh, this is the time to jump on the train if you would like to. I'd love to have you. And those classes go through June 21st. Is that once a, right. once a week or what's the frequency? It's once a week. We're looking at Tuesdays. Uh, my All the information is at Fricks. Dot com and the registration is open so you can just click the button and ta-da pick the class that you're signing up for okay and that link will be in the show notes of course of course um so yeah so let's let's talk about this crazy story all right you want to read it for us yeah excellent and and you've specifically requested that i read it in the lexham english bible that's correct <laughs> um so this is a slight change i'm actually going to pick up verse 53 of chapter seven okay. because apparently it belongs together in this whole thing hmm. and we got to cover every verse l hmm. according to you it belongs uh well okay we'll talk about that later okay cool <laughs> um and each one went to his own house this is after um after all of this discussion in the uh in the temple courts and whatever uh water ceremony everything we talked about previously um but jesus went to the mount of olives now early in the morning, he came again to the temple courts and all the people were coming and he sat down and began to teach them. Now the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery and standing her in their midst, they said to him, testing him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now they were saying this to test him so that they would have an occasion to bring charges against him. But Jesus, bending down, began to write with his finger on the ground, taking no notice. And when they persisted in asking him, straightening up, he said to them, The one of you without sin, let him throw the first stone at her. And bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Now when they heard it, being convicted by their conscience, they began to depart one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman who was in their midst. So Jesus, straightening up and seeing no one except the woman, said to her, Where are those accusers of yours? Does no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. So Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is the word of the Lord, and it's pretty crazy. How did they catch this woman? What were they doing? Were they spying around residential areas? Because, you know, this wasn't out in public, you know? <laughs> it's like, what is going on? Yeah. That's my question for you. Do you have uh, some some foresight there? Well, uh, you know, the, the living situation at the time was fairly communal. So mm -hmm. the idea that she or her um adulterous Paramore. partner <laughs> would would have lived alone uh seems unlikely to me so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. perhaps it was you know a family member who was a little 
a little overzealous or a little bit of a tattletale or something. I don't know. Yeah. And they're like, this is the perfect moment to get that annoying teacher in the midst of this family drama. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, super sketchy. Either way, I think we can um, agree. Not not normal behavior, um, at least in our society. But it's a hugely moving story, right? It's all about mercy triumphing over justice and violence. Jesus pointing out hypocrisy. Um, we see Jesus risking sacrificing his own reputation for st- standing up for someone with a sketchy status, right? Um, how often do our leaders today not do the right thing and not side with victims because they're afraid that even talking about impropriety will make them look bad. So Jesus acts as an ancient broker for her, someone in that society um, who intervenes in times of need. So uh, have you ever been in a car accident, Brent? Um, not really. Uh, me neither. Dang, neither of us have a good example here. But <laughs> apparently, so um, my sister and brother-in-law lived in the Middle East for years. Um, and if you get a car into a car accident in the Middle East, um, they check your ID card. And the first thing you do is you call your broker and your broker figures out, okay, this is like the shared connection of um, you know the person who hit you through this many channels, and here I'm going to set up this whole situation for you. Um, and your broker is on your ID card in the Middle East, um, and it goes by status. So your patron um, might be the king if you're a really high up person, and if you're a really low down person, then it's probably just you know a prestigious person in your neighborhood. So it scales like that. So Jesus here becomes her. Um, ally becomes her advocate and it's doing something to his status specifically, which um, Jesus is also called a broker in Hebrews, 1 Timothy and 1 John. So it's not just me having conjecture here. He uses his status to protect him from violence um, at great cost to him, right? Because it would have been easier for him to make a point that he does follow Torah. He or she's literally doing something wrong. This isn't a healing on Shabbat issue. This is a really clear Torah issue. Adultery is a sin, period, right? And in Jewish tradition, it's one of the very worst sins. Um, but given the chance to lean into the rules, Jesus chooses not to. Um, and I think that's amazing. Yeah. And as you were talking, I was just realizing that uh, I did not say anything about our current situation. So you are actually sick right now. Oh my gosh, um, I'm so sick. Which is, And then you're also in your new house, um, which is relatively close to me based on where you were before. Uh, We're not in the same location, unfortunately, but uh, you are in your new house and you don't have all your furniture yet. And so your whole sound uh, your, your own like personal sound is different because you're sick and your environmental sound is different because of the new location. Yes. So thank you for your patience with me, everyone. Disclaimer. It is different. I think, you know, we'll make it so people can hear you. It's not going to be a problem, but it will be different than normal. And if I say anything that sounds totally off the deep end, you can just know that I'm totally feverish at the moment and blame <laughs> it on that. And it's fine. Can't get away with everything. Oh man, I said that. Oh, must've been the fever. <laughs> It's genius. It's genius. Uh, yeah. So Jesus is, uh, yeah, he's not taking, not taking the easy out on this one. He's not, he's totally not. And there's lots of other options that he could have had, um, that he could have gone with, like, let's not kill her, but she's definitely exiled from her community or, um, as often happens in our churches. Um, well, 
she needs to get into a 20-step program to prove her repentance, and we'll keep everything on the down low before we suddenly send the church leader to a different church with no explanation once we decide everything's good, (laughs) right? Totally ethical. Um, But he doesn't do any of those things. He pays attention to the victim. He sets her into a new life of liberation via an encounter with her. He could have stopped at just saying the right thing. Um, Gail O'Day, and I'll link to her in the show notes, um, says the woman is invited to participate in a new future for herself that will allow her to live not as a condemned woman, but as a freed woman. So he could have just like yelled at the crowd and been like, what's wrong with you slinking around people's houses looking for sin? Stop it, you know, and then been like, have a good day. But no, he specifically works with her and her own repentance and gives her an opportunity to call him Lord and all of those things. Um, which brings me to why isn't the man here, Brent? Yeah, that's, that's the question. Um, especially since the, uh, the accusation, um, references a text that talks both about the man and the woman in a situation like this. Right. And presumably if she was actually caught in the act, in the very act, as it says, uh, (laughs) it would be very clear who the other party is. And yet he is not not a part of this demonstration. He's not. Yeah. There is a text in numbers that says like, if you're not sure about the woman, then bring her out and have her do this absolutely bonkers ritual, um, to see whether she's a curse to the community or not. Um, but when it's both of them that are caught, they're both supposed to be killed the end. Um, so why isn't he here? Here's one postulation other than, you know, the fact that men have taken women's sexuality more seriously than their own for a long time. But in Roman law, men had much freer sexual restrictions or lack thereof than women. So women could only have sex with the person they were married to. But in Roman society, the men could freely sleep with other men, prostitutes, slaves, no problem. Um, So that's something interesting to me about the kind of crowd that they're working with. It's Also, a little bit possible, um, there is a fortress, the Antonia Fortress, up by the Temple Mount. So it could be um, that there's like a mob coming, bringing both of them. And maybe like the guards intervened and were like, hey, 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 what's going on here? Like right now, if there's a mob that comes up to the Temple Mount, boy, oh boy, the soldiers are going to stop things and say, hey, hey, no, thank you. What's what's going on? So it's possible that they stepped in and said, well, according to our law, the man is fine and let him go. That seems pretty unlikely to me that they would care that much, but it's still possible. Hmm. Yeah. Or would it, would it also possibly be a situation where a Roman caught them and, Mm. and uh, like, I can't remember exactly how it plays out, but, uh, but there are times where it's like, okay, so here's, here's what we found this guy doing. What, what do you guys want to do with him? Mm. Um, which, which they did with Jesus. Later that on. could be. That could be. It seems more unusual that Rome, um, you know, we're only in chapter seven, would be that concerned about Jesus and hoping to take him down um, already. But um, and it's also more unusual for the Pharisees to be allying at that level with them um, and getting them involved in their affairs. But it's still possible. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Mm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. There's also a 
cool little theological note here. So um, the thing I mentioned in Numbers 5, she's a curse for her community, um, right, if she's doing this, which is super important. These communal societies, they're tied together by the group identity of we follow these behaviors, we follow these rules. And so if she is not, she's breaking the group identity and bringing dishonor. This is how we get honor killings, which is what this is. Um, And it just reminds me of Galatians 3 when Jesus absorbs this curse, because presuming she is guilty, he lets her go free anyway. And we have that verse saying that he became a curse for us. And in the previous chapter, in John 7, it also says that the crowd was cursed because they didn't know Torah. So we have two mentions of curses in Jesus um, absolving them anyway, because he still died for the people who were cursed because they didn't know Torah. Yeah. Mm. That's great. Bringing the heat today, Brent. Bringing yeah. me the tough questions. <laughs> mm. um, okay. Let's see. Is there anything else we need to talk about with this story just on the surface level? Um, I don't think so. It's, it's you know, a 10 out of 10 story. It preaches on its own. Um, you know, if we wanted to. No notes. End of the episode. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs> um, but of course, there is more to it. Yeah, we do have, you know, the the very obvious question like every Bible that you pick up makes it very clear that this story does not belong. It is different than everything else in the book of John. So what what is going on with the origins of this story? Uh, when does it come from? Uh, I, I don't know that we've necessarily like posted a sign establishing exactly when John was written, but like Clearly, this was not part of the original. So how did it get in there? Um, the There's a gigantic footnote in the NET about all of the different uh, manuscript possibilities here, why it could be in there, why it's not in there, internal and external evidence um, suggesting why it should or shouldn't be in there, uh, other possible locations for it. There's like it, it has been placed in some manuscripts earlier in John 7 later in John 8, as well as uh, in John 21, and then a couple of different options in the book of Luke, which is totally bonkers to me. So what is going on with this this story? Why is it even here? And yeah, I like I, I was talking to a couple friends about um, about this as I was prepping for recording. Uh, and my friend Noah was like, well, the way it's set off, like, I'm not even sure that I should like spend much time thinking about this story because I I don't even know if it really belongs there. Like, like I can't, I I don't feel like Mm -hmm. I can draw any conclusions off of it because I'm not sure it really belongs. So I've got to back everything else up with other texts, et cetera. Um, so yeah, that, that that was, yeah. Um, many, many thoughts about the authenticity or the, the, even the usefulness of this passage. Many thoughts for sure. So, I mean, I can't really answer the part about whether we should study it or whether it should be helpful because that has to do with your own personal philosophy of how you think of inspiration of the text. Um, I hold to a philosophy that the text evolved and came together over a long period of time, right? Oral tradition um, that got put down specifically by God. Um, 
over a long period of time. So the fact that this part uh, might have been added later by the early church about a story that really happened with Jesus, to me, is important. Um, But if to other people there's a particular date, you know, like theologically, if you think the Spirit left um, at a particular time and that um, the text was supposed to stop at that time, then that could be an argument for checking it out the window. Um, So I'm not going to legislate people's feelings on that, but here's what I can say about the manuscripts. And and we did talk about all those different types of possibilities and the assemblage of the text and stuff back in episode 82, if anyone wants to review that. Of course. Who could forget episode 82? (laughs) It's a popular one. I'm sure. uh, Or or unpopular, depending on... (laughs) How you feel Depending about it at the end. on your preferences. <laughs> sure, sure. And I'm not here to get in people's business about their preferences. I'll let you guys decide on your own. Um, however, this is what I can teach about this particular text. So it's true that in the very earliest manuscripts, we don't have it. Um, I'm going to talk when I get into the cultural context about why I believe it's here. So I don't want to do that right at this moment. Um, But I can tell you that after it gets added, um, and the date of our earliest manuscript that it's added is 384 CE or AD, um, depending on your preference. And I know that's pretty late, but from that, we have the majority of manuscripts. So um, Codex D, E, F, F, J, A, U, R, and R um, are some of the most famous um, manuscripts, which um, all include it in the spot that it's supposed to be. So the ones that say that they're in different spots, I'm not looking at your NET, so I can't be exactly sure. But what I have here is that the Armenian transcripts put it at the end of John, the Georgian transcripts put it after um, John 744. Um, and going on, there's other options as well. But those ones are from the 9th century, the 10th, 11th century, 12th century, 13th century, even up to 15th century. So we're getting pretty wonky in terms of our weighing of which manuscripts are important, right? So if you want to say the very earliest manuscripts are the only ones I care about, then sure, maybe toss them out the window. But if you want to talk about the majority, um, 95.9 of our Greek translations or Greek manuscripts that is have this uh, text in the exact location that it is here. So there's 1,427 manuscripts that have it in this spot. Um, and there's only a few of those. 58 of them are not in this spot or don't have it at all. So to me, that's pretty... Uh, that's pretty compelling. It's like um, at a specific time, they either took it out in the very beginning and it got re-added in later, or they decided that it was an important story to put in at this point. But I'd say the ones that get a lot of attention that have put it in a different place are... Um, <laughs> It's first off, it's, they're all really close places too. They're not like wildly far away, except for the Armenian version, which puts it at the very end. Um, but they are they are in the five percent rather than the ninety five percent. Does that help? I think so. Yeah. And trying to wade through all these different manuscripts, like uh, it will make your head spin for sure. But um, yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot of people who've been working on this for a long time. And there's a lot of information out there if you want to dig into the academic side of things. Right. Totally. Um, yes. Was it removed out of an androcentric fear of antinomianism? 
maybe um you know there's lots of reasons that it could have passed out of favor and then gotten returned so those are large words l i don't know if you can use those with just, me on the podcast just roll with it go uh-huh uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> there you go perfect you got it just keep doing that yeah and just you know uh pulling a little bit out of the net footnote like just looking at the text on its own if you take this section out John seven fifty two flows into um, eight twelve like just fine, but it also flows really well with it in there. So, right, you know, internally, uh, it, you know, and you could probably do that with a lot of different places where you take a chunk out. Yeah. It's like okay, that that flows just fine. I mean, take the whole first weird section out of John, and you wouldn't notice because none of the other Bibles start with "in the beginning," yeah. Gladriel portion. Right. As we all know it as, obviously. Not yeah, just me. Uh, yeah, definitely. That's what I always call it. <laughs> good, good. Glad to hear it. Okay. okay. Well, that, that's Looking enough. at the text, though, specifically, what's the big question everyone always asks about this story, Brent? Um, what's the mystery? The big mystery? Oh, man. What? I, I don't know. <laughs> I okay. feel like I've talked about this story so much, I feel like I don't know what's what's the normal question. What stands out? The big question that people have been grappling with for ages is, what is it that he wrote on the ground? Bum, 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 because uh, it doesn't yeah. tell us. Okay. Um, yeah. And so people come up with all sorts of different ish, uh, ideas. Ambrose in the 300s AD came up with the idea that he's writing the names of people present on the ground because there's that verse in Jeremiah that says those who have been disowned by their father in heaven have their names written on the ground while the names of the people of God are written in heaven. So you think, what is the Bible? Um, the book is being innovative, but really he's just quoting a thousand year old tradition. Um, the Byzantines suggest that Jesus wrote people's sins on the ground, which would be very exciting and also pretty God-goggly, um, more than Bema usually likes to be. <laughs> but um, I don't know about yeah. you, but I'm pretty sure if he started writing people's sins on the ground, everybody would have stayed. <laughs> they wouldn't have run away. They'd be like, mm, oh, no, you didn't. I am totally want to know what you did last night. Right? Um, <laughs> I think human nature would have been too compelling. Some more recent ideas is that he was quoting Exodus. You must not lend a false report, which people are like, look, that one's short, so it makes more sense to them. I like things that are more along this line because it doesn't tell us what he wrote. And so maybe that's for a reason. But pulling from the text, maybe Jesus wrote this with his finger, just like God wrote Torah with his finger in Exodus. So he's making a deity push again. Um, And also God wrote on the wall with his finger, smelling the end of the authority figures in the book of Daniel, as Jesus is always yelling at the authority figures. So maybe that's what he's alluding to. Um, It's also totally possible that he was just staring at the ground because we don't know what kind of state of dress the woman was in when they dragged her out. And so he could be defending her honor by directing his gaze elsewhere. Um, Any of those possibilities are okay with me, but I think that they're the wrong question, Brent. And I think we miss the point completely because of our privileges. Fair enough. I do like the uh, the Daniel possibility that that idea of the writing on the wall has always um, always been like a strong image in my mind. Uh, but was it the Veggie Tales episode, Brent? Uh, no, but it was something. Uh, I could not tell you what it was, but I I I mean maybe it wasn't. But I feel like I have a very strong image in my mind. Of that scene of a cucumber? No, it wasn't. It wasn't Veggie Tales. It was pre Veggie Tales. Mm. But I don't know what it was. But I, 
and maybe it doesn't exist. Like maybe I just made that up. I'm pretty sure there's something, but if anyone knows, like, you know, early nineties, uh, Christian, if anyone can read Brent's mind <laughs> and know something that's not veggie tales as if there was a time veggie tales didn't exist. Well, I mean, I do like veggie tales generally. I've but... never seen them. Oh, really? I've never oh, seen huh? them. Yeah. Except for recently, um, my church was having a fun get together and it was late at night and they ended up all singing VeggieTales songs at the top of their lungs because those are my people. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. It was good. After, after you left, actually, you were there. All right. But so I said that I think this is the wrong question. So let's not get off track. Okay. I think the thing that doesn't stand out to us at all um, is the writing, because we're like, sure, yeah, writing, do that every day, wish wish I didn't, maybe. But this is mind-blowing to the people of this time, because who can write? Oh, the scribes. scribes. Yeah, okay. exactly. 100%, Brent. Stamp of approval. The scribes can write. And what was the conversation just before this? They're all arguing about whether he can be Messiah or not. And in the previous chapter, they're having this huge conversation. How can this man teach when he's had no education? Could Messiah, could Messiah really have come from Galilee? And then what does the narrator do but portray Jesus writing immediately? Writing is a huge deal. It's 100% a prestige thing. So the scribal class is a whole different class of people. We think of writing as not much of a flex. Um, but Paul talks all day about how great his education was, right? But um, he still used a scribe. And it's not because he wanted to be able to walk around the room gesticulating. He would even write a few of his own lines and then be like, look, I have written this with my own hand, which think is funny again but even uh <laughs> he's proud of himself he knows he knows his worth okay so josephus complete traitor um adopted by the romans for his usefulness even he who wrote tons of things needed help writing in greek and then we have jesus writing so wow. one way to frame is this why you wanted me to read it in lexham because it translates it scribes instead of teachers of the law uh i wanted you to read it in lexham because i have a particular preference for lexham because okay. they're very very literal and i actually trust them um when i haven't done the work of going through it myself so mm, okay i was going through other things than the um details of the greek so i wanted to rely on somebody good okay but this whole framework, so if you have a question about why was this put in here, if you're more of the idea that it was put in late rather than it used to be there and then it was replaced, this whole thing, you can look at this whole book and this whole argument so far as a framework for Jesus' prestige. And that might make some of our listeners uncomfortable since we don't love um, ego, but hold the phone uh, and wait for just a minute. But John 3, Nicodemus, he has a conversation with. He teaches the teacher of teachers. John 4, he teaches this prestigious Samaritan religious leader, woman, in her community. Um, so again, that's a prestige marker of two totally different groups. John 6, he teaches the crowds, showing that he's better than Moshe, who, by the way, in Jewish tradition is counted as the chief scribe and the originator of the scribes. Um, because while they're both deliverers and shepherds of the people and people who commune with God, Moshe received manna and Jesus provides manna. 
And then John 7, they're like, how can all of this be so? How can he be qualified to teach all of these people and make all these claims? He doesn't have an education. He is from Galilee. And so now here's this verse saying, actually, he has this incredible education that he is able to write. Man, the book of John does not disappoint. It doesn't. My goodness. It's got layers. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. That's excellent. Not only the fact that he is like, and knowing that the scribes are there. Right. Like the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman. Okay. So they're, they're, the people who know this best are there watching this whole thing unfold. And like he's addressing his audience once again, directly, which which is amazing. And then on top of that, it just fits into this whole extra theme of John that we haven't even really talked about up to this point. Uh, there's so much happening in John all at the same time. There is. There is. It's in the Bible for a reason, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. But I want to get deeper into this prestige flex thing um, because we might be a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus having to show off to gain clout, right? Um, we might be people who are more like, mm, the more mature person is able to sit back and not worry about it. Um, but I want to stretch our imaginations a little and get us out of our maybe ethnocentric boxes by talking about shame and honor in these different cultures um, of the ancient Mediterranean so shame is super important in their culture. We touched on earlier because it helps people stay within the bounds of who we are and who we are supposed to be. Group identity is what keeps you alive as people and not assimilated into Rome, um, right? We kind of see that in Ukraine right now. They're really um, leaning into their national identity and doing all these beautiful things because they're in the face of assimilation and that's in danger. Um, so here, in the face of the danger of Rome, the woman is being shamed because she's broken the boundaries of the community. So shame is a way to bring back honor, which is weird to us because we think of them as just opposites. But they're saying this woman deserves violence because she's impugned what it means for me to be me. I'm a holy person. I'm a holy Pharisee. I'm different than all these heathens. And when one of my people goes off the deep end, it makes me look bad. And so killing her would be a way of restoring honor to the group. Um, so what would people think? So thus begins something anthropologists call an honor contest. Have you ever heard of an honor contest? No, not an honor contest. Ba -ba -bum. Okay, well... It sounds exactly like what it is. You compete with honor to win honor from the other person. So there's three stages. Stage number one, one party who believes they have more honor than they are being given, or more specifically, more honor than the other party, challenges the other person. Number two, if the parties are close to honor and close in honor to one another, the party being challenged responds. If not, they could ignore them or shrug them off with a joke. Both of those options are trying to maintain their honor, um, the honor of the other person. So if you think about like fantasy movies, this happens all the time of some random bro standing up and being like, I should be king. And um, if he doesn't have like a real claim, he just kind of gets elbowed in the ribs and people shush him and he sits back down. Um, but if it's a real threat to King Arthur or whoever, um, then everybody goes, oh no, what's going to happen? And then they have to have a duel or something. 
Um, uh, this version doesn't have duels in it, but it's the same kind of idea when it comes to, you can choose to ignore if it's not a good claim or you can face it. Um, and then the third step in an honor contest is the court of reputation weighs in is what it's called. So the crowd is the judge who delivers the verdict. So obviously both parties aren't good, um, they're not good estimators of who won because they have biases. And so it's up to the crowd. So the example given in the amazing book, um, misreading, misreading the Bible with individualist eyes, misreading Jesus with individualist eyes should nail down which one of those it is. Um, insert name of book here. (laughs) Hold on. Aha, I got it. Misreading scripture with individualist eyes um, gives this example about a rural village in Papua New Guinea where one of the um, authors is from. And um, a student leaves the village and goes off and gets a bunch of degrees. And he comes back to his rural village and he goes to this wedding feast. And the tribal leader has him sit down way down the table, a position of dishonor. Uh Uh-oh. So that's step number one. He believes he hasn't been given the honor that he's earned by going and getting these degrees. So he stands up and says, I should be closer to the head of the table. Now it's up to the chief at the head of the table to say, he can either say, I think you've been gone too long, or he can listen to the crowd and decide to move him to the head of the table, right? And then the crowd decides either by kind of hissing at him and telling him to sit back down or by, um, you know, leaving the space open and staring at the leader, maybe pulling out the chair. And so it's up to the crowd. And if he is moved to the front, it's this victory for the crowd because now they all have more honor because their, uh, their student has honor. So now they can say, oh, we have our village has hosted did this person who went um, and got all these degrees. Does that example make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Okay. So we're going to apply that to the story then. Can you see it? Yeah. The, I mean, I, I do have questions about the crowd. So yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's look at it. By the way, this is why G- Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. In my opinion, it's not because he's a coward or sneaky. It's because he's avoiding have a, having a giant honor contest and he just wants to have a solid conversation with Jesus, right? Because if he was doing it in public, bum, 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 everybody's there and it becomes this whole thing about honor and he just wants to chat. I think Nicodemus gets a lot of flack. But, okay, so then the previous lines, they're talking about Jesus not being good enough to be Messiah. And so here they say, you think you have prestige, you think you have honor, you think you're like the great scribes who can make great legal discernments. Well, then show us. Um, And it says it's a trick. Um, Why do you think that it it would be a trick? Like, what's the trap that Jesus can fall into? Uh, Well, he, it doesn't really matter what he, what he does. They can either peg him for um, not being merciful, or they can peg him for not holding up Torah or whatever. Why do you think they would be upset that he was being merciful? Uh, why would they be upset at his mercy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, be, be, I guess in the, in this honor contest sort of way, he, uh, he would not be upholding the honor of their, 
of their group. Perhaps. Have you ever read from the Apocrypha, the story of Susanna? Uh, No, I have not. Okay. The story of Susanna is from the Apocrypha. Um, It's at the end of the book of Daniel. And we know it's at least from the second century BCE and it gets put in the Septuagint. So we know that it's known in the Jewish community. Um, And so in this story, it says two elders, so two older prestigious people are spying on Susanna bathing, uh, as you do apparently. And they decide that they're going to assault her. And they tell her that if she tries to do anything about it, they'll accuse her of adultery with a young man under a tree. She fends them off and they have her arrested. She's brought to court. Um, and young Daniel, the same Daniel from the rest of the book appears on scene and demands that her accusers are cross-examined. And then when they're separated from one another, which is also Daniel's idea, um, the attackers claim that she was under different trees and instead they're um, condemned and killed. So here's the trap. If Jesus doesn't condemn the woman to death, he doesn't know Torah, just as they've accused the uneducated crowd in chapter seven. But if he does condemn her, he hasn't done his due diligence as a judge, as said by Daniel. Um, And also, if he does cross-examine her or her accusers, he's being lewd because he's talking about R-rated topics in the presence of God, um, right? Because the temple's right there. And that's a big deal. Like you don't put a mezuzah over a bathroom door because you don't want God's presence to be watching over you go to the bathroom so they've (laughs) set it all up to be a great trap okay okay so yeah they are they are in the temple courts right right that's where it all takes place and so he first ignores them, right? So he first falls into the first part of the honor contest of like, look, you can't even mess with my honor. So don't even try, right? It says um, in verse six that he bent down and began to write his finger with his finger on the ground, taking no notice, (laughs) burn. Uh, And then verse seven, they persisted in talking to him. So he straightened up and engages them in this honor contest. So he's like, okay, you really want to do this? Fine. Um, And he puts them down by writing and showing off. Look, I do have this prestige. I do have this honor. Take that. I'm actually very educated and you guys don't know. Also, there are a bunch of prophets who are from the Galilee. So we are expected to shame them in the previous chapter by being like um, Hosea and all these other people. So he answers their honor challenge. And then the crowd um, listens to that. And if he does do the Jeremiah one and saying that they're nothing like their father in heaven, the crowd then sees that shaming women who have been humiliated are nothing like their father in heaven. Those who take opportunity to hit women when they're down or at any point look nothing like God. And they side with Jesus. They leave. They disperse this mob. They stop looking at this woman who might be in a various state of undress and join Jesus in not looking at her and leaving and giving her an opportunity to start her new um, identity, thus Jesus winning the prestige back from the scribes and Pharisees. Hmm. Yes. Hmm. Does that make more sense? Yeah. So I guess maybe this is a good time for my question about the crowds. So at the end of it, it says Jesus uh, looks up and sees that nobody is there except the woman. Right. And presumably they're still in the temple courts which seems like an odd place for nobody to be. True. Uh, I would imagine most of the time there's going to be a fairly substantial number of people there. True. Sometimes more than others, but for nobody to be there sounds kind of weird to me. 
but also before they bring this woman to Jesus, he is in the temple courts um, teaching the crowd. Right. It says all the people were coming and he sat down and began to teach them. That's a lot of people. All the people is a lot of people. Right. So it seems like he's very directly addressing the scribes and Pharisees, uh, obviously, in this in this situation. But then at the end of the story, everybody has left. So right. what, um, yeah, like would, would the, would the rest of the crowd feel the conviction of what he's saying to the scribes and Pharisees and feel like they need to leave right? or, or do they, do the scribes and Pharisees leave first and they say, well, if they're leaving, then clearly we need to leave because they have more honor than us. They have more prestige than us. So we need to follow their lead. Right. Um, What's what's the order of operations here? Two things. Two things that I see. So you're right. There's a huge crowd of people. And again, this is the same framework from the last chapter. We're still in conversation with the last chapter. So in the last chapter, there's this big dialogue between the leaders and the people. And the people are saying a jumble of things. And the leaders are saying a jumble of things. And there are some people and the people who think that Jesus is Mashiach. And Nicodemus stands up for Jesus. And so it's a big jumble. But it's still... Um, the leaders curse the people because they don't know Torah, right? Um, so here we have all of the people and then the scribes and Pharisees because it's these, still the same two figures, um, the people being one proverbial figure. And so um, I think that's why it has all the people coming. And then as to why is it that they all leave, I think two things um, that they, it's not like you would see this huge mob going on and this woman probably in a state of undress and be like, well, I guess I'm going to go about my business. Um, This is a community in which everybody gets involved. You're going to pack together and watch what's going on. This is obviously a big showdown. Um, If you know, as this honor contest is going on, that your participation is important and what you decide is important. And so you want to participate in that. And then I think that they all leave because they're all joining with Jesus and protecting the dignity of this woman um, after being convicted by his remark, which is also from Deuteronomy, by the way. It's just following up on the law of the conditions on which you can stone somebody. And so I think that's why they all leave, because they're all participating and they're all in it together. um, And they all are determining together that Jesus won. And so they all leave. um, And that's the courts. So it's not the whole temple complex completely. So it's not like the priests are like, oh, man, I guess I can't sing today. Bye and run off. Um, They're going back to their duties and, and such. Um, but one thing I do want to point out is that it says early in the morning, um, and that's a hepox legomenon, um, which, uh, means it's the only time in the book of John that it shows up. It's an unusual phrase. Um, and early in the morning is also a very specific motif from somewhere in Torah. Do you know where in Genesis, I'll narrow it down for you, early in the morning shows up for the first time? Ooh, I 
do not. Early in the morning shows up for the first time when, not Jesus, oh dear, when Avraham has to get up early to sneak out Yitzhak to go sacrifice him before mom gets up and stops Uh. the whole thing going on. So what does that mean? That means that Jesus is being Avraham, but he's doing what Avraham ought to have done, right? Stepping in and being God at the same time and providing this way of salvation for this woman who's about to be killed. Like Isaac was about to be killed, which also elevates her in terms of honor if that comparison really is happening. And also in that story, there are other characters that get left behind with the donkey at the bottom of the mountain. So it even kind of fits with the people leaving. Mm. Oh, man. Uh, it's good. Uh, shoot. I know. Okay. And then he goes on and talks about life and light. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Yeah, this this uh, this jumble of who Jesus is addressing and talking to and who's around at any given point uh, has been a theme for the last couple chapters of John and will continue to be a theme for hmm. uh, for a few more chapters. I think I can't remember exactly where where this whole conversation sort of disperses. But yeah, it's like Jesus is kind of <laughs> like everyone is tag teaming against Jesus or at least not necessarily against him, but just like in conversation with him. Like, right. You know, he's having a conversation with the Pharisees and they ask him a question and his response and they're like, oh, he got us. And then they (laughs) turn around and then Jesus turns the other way and now he's talking to the crowd. And then, you know, the scribes and Pharisees come up with this other thing. Yeah. So there's right. Hopefully the language of honor contest helps to see this pattern, which happens again and again. The like the coin one about the tax and everything is another instance of this where um, the people are just seeing the problem with Jesus or one of them in this ancient Mediterranean community is that he's ascribing more honor to himself than he's earned in their particular view, right? He's this carpenter from Galilee or, you know, stonemason or joiner or whichever camp you want to be in. Um, And he's making all these wild claims. And this community does not do that. Individualist communities were like, yeah, I want to be the very best, you know, and just like, (laughs) yeah, I am special and I am important. Um, It's very important in their society to know exactly how much honor you have and to work to gain more honor for yourself and your family and your community, um, actually in backwards order for your community and your family and then yourself. Right. Um, and so they're always offended by Jesus because, you know, claiming to be a prophet or claiming to be better than Moses is like, Hey, play in the system, man. You don't just get to walk around being like, well, actually, did you know that I'm way cooler than everybody else? And so I think that's why these honor contests keep happening because Jesus keeps making these great claims about his deity that we miss because we don't know the text. Um, I say as a, you know, not, not always true, but, um, that we often miss. Um, and so that's why they're, they're not missing them and they're frustrated with him all the time because he could be just a great teacher. He could be a great weapon for them against Rome. He could be all these other things that the Pharisees would want him to be like the Pharisees aren't just evil to the core, hating him and wanting his downfall for no reason. They're like, Hey, play in our system and we can work together. We have shared goals here. We both care about Torah. Um, can we find some common ground here? And Jesus keeps saying, Nope, because you guys are correct because you guys don't understand the heart of my father because you guys are trying to kill people when my father is about life. 
So, you know. Yeah, this idea of like the crowd participation in this process, I feel like opens up a lot of understanding about this this whole chunk of John mm. where all of these different groups are there. Like I'm thinking back to John John 6 where a whole bunch of his disciples turned away and no longer followed him. Right. And like those aren't the 12, the 12 were still there. So what it, what is that larger group of disciples? Mm-hmm. But to some extent it's got to be this like crowd type concept, right? Where Right. where he had these people who were on his side who were, you know, pushing for his prestige. And then he comes out with this, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood teaching and they're like, like yeah, okay. So maybe the maybe the chief maybe was not. right. Get yeah. down to that other end of the table. Yep. So which by the way is a super frequent um that's a super frequent thing that all the time people throw in the face of other sects. So there are lots of early um branches of early Christianity and the number one thing that you accuse the people that you don't like of like the North Africans particularly got this a lot was the, uh, the Italian new Christians would often be like, they eat babies for communion. And of course that got into blaming Jewish people of doing the same too. So it's pretty crazy that with that one line, Jesus started this whole string of misunderstanding and finger pointing. So I guess he's God and he saw it coming, but still unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> yeah. I had not, not heard that before. Yeah. So now we don't have all the writings of all these really cool early Christian communities because racism, but um, also because we are always so busy accusing each other of having like orgies for communion and eating people. So it's a real bummer. Stop accusing each other of totally <laughs> wild things and yeah. leave things for archaeologists to find. Thank you very much. Oh Bury goodness. books in the ground every chance you get. And olive pits. They're great for, for carbon dating. <laughs> there you go. Um, so tips with L do you, um, I think you mentioned having a few different, um, books or other sources, uh, that we could link for people to, uh, dive deeper on this if they so choose. Yeah. So, um, the book that I mentioned already was misreading scripture through individualist eyes. It's phenomenal. I think that everybody should read it. Um, I have some more academic books that are expensive and um, more difficult to read if you're not used to it, but I relied a lot upon the Pericope Adulterae, the Gospel of John and the Literacy of Jesus by Chris Keefe. And then also in the show notes, I'll link to some um, I'll link to some journal articles from Harvard, I think. And those are by ba, 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 by Jennifer Schur and Gail O'Day and one other person that I'm not remembering. I'm sorry, random man. I have your name written down here somewhere in my doc and I'm not seeing it. <laughs> Just click on the links. Well, you'll see it. Much like the man in the uh in this situation was not known. <laughs> this man in the Harvard <laughs> journals will not be known. <laughs> he, you know, but he can be if you just click the link. Sure, sure, sure. That's true. Yep. We're not, we're not going to find the name of the guy in John eight though, unfortunately. No. Um, okay. Well, oh man. Yeah. I just, uh, my, my mind is just going back through all of those other conversations thinking about like, the crowds and the different groups that Jesus was engaging and just thinking like, 
how does that change my understanding mm. as far as, I don't, I don't know. I, I did not expect that to be my takeaway from this conversation, yeah, but that's, I mean, that's where my mind is going in all these directions right now. Other good directions to land on, stand with victims, be willing to put down your own prestige and honor on the line in order to protect people. You know, that's always a good one too. Yeah. And just the idea of, of, you know, this communal thinking and not individualist thinking uh, is very, very challenging hmm. um, for our modern context to, to understand right. because it's just so different, so much the opposite of how we've lived our entire lives. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I think that does it for this episode. Sounds good to me. If you want to get a hold of L. She's not on the Slack yet, right? I'm not on the Slack. I'm not on social media. Don't try to find me there. Just email me at elkriverfricks at gmail.com. Okay, perfect. Well, you can find Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EABCB. You can find more details about the show at BayamontDeceptionship.com. Check out all the show notes uh, that we have for today. Lots of stuff to dig into if you want to go deeper. And don't forget about uh, Hebrew classes with L if you want to sign up. That's right. Those are coming up very soon as of the published date of this episode. Uh, so get in on that if you've been waiting. So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>